when CNN doesn't just get a minor uptick in the ratings, but it actually demonstrates its value almost as a public utility. And it is being given a lifeline here in terms of being able to showcase its news gathering prowess. And at the same time, this bump is so relatively small that I think it highlights just how much damage Chrislet did to the reputation. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, October 13th. Today I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about how the conflict in Israel has highlighted some important contrasts between CNN, which thrives in war coverage, and liberal MSNBC, which is often caught flat-footed when it comes to real-time breaking news reporting. Dylan and I dig into how both networks are covering Israel and Hamas and the tricky spot that MSNBC finds itself in politically. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to discuss the latest financial predicament at Twitter and how the platform is only getting worse as a source of useful information during breaking news situations. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. It's Friday the 13th. I can't remember in October, a Halloween month, when we've actually had a Friday the 13th. But here we are on this Friday. Dylan Byers and I are both in Massachusetts, not Salem. Uh, we are in the People's Republic of Cambridge. We'll both be speaking on a panel at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard University's Kennedy School, where I am lucky enough to be a board member. Thank you, Nancy Gibbs. Dylan and I will be talking about what's changed in the media since 2020 as we head into the next election year. Uh, This is all off the record. So sorry, Powers That Be listeners. This is all you're (laughs) going to get. But don't worry. We say the quiet part out loud anyway here at Puck. Dylan, welcome to the podcast. We are probably like literally half a mile from each other and recording this digitally. But it's great to see your face. It's it's strange to be, you know, walking around in the autumn leaves amidst all the earnest young Harvard students and not not to have seen you yet, Peter. <laughs> well, I'm sure once we're on campus later today, we will see <laughs> lots of earnest young students and loud students either protesting against the state of Israel or because this is the People's Republic of Cambridge in support of uh, the Palestinians. There's been some protests in Cambridge over the last few days that have become very heated. Harvard itself uh, received a lot of blowback from prominent alumni for not condemning 30 student groups that came out and blamed the Hamas terrorist attacks squarely on Israel uh, and the history of the, quote, apartheid regime there. Obviously, these are debates that have flared on the left for a very long time. I will leave that for another podcast. Dylan, I do want to ask you about Israel and Hamas, though in particular in the context of TV news, uh, and even more in particular, the context of CNN and MSNBC. This is one of those moments where CNN has always shined and shined even in the post-Trump years when ratings are down, when we left Afghanistan, when Ukraine invaded Russia, whenever there's some major international breaking news story, CNN is kicking ass. Clarissa Ward and Alex Marquardt are on the ground showcasing all their chops, Nick Robertson. Jeremy Diamond is over there right now. Then you flip over to MSNBC, and this has long been a problem for them, not just in the Trump liberal therapy years where they've just had sort of like punditry on TV all the time and telling the left what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear sometimes. 
And they don't really have the muscle, the reporting muscle overseas that CNN does. NBC News certainly does. Richard Engel comes on MSNBC all the time. But what are you noticing right now? I mean, are the ratings up or down for either network? Is this just another example of MSNBC being caught flat-footed because of the bet they made many, many years ago that, you know, we're going to do opinion-style journalism uh, and not on-the-ground reporting? And are CNN's ratings up? Yeah, you know, so the ratings have shifted considerably since Saturday morning when this started. And I usually don't pay too much, to the extent I pay attention to the ratings in cable news, as, as you well know, it's to sort of point out that they're squabbling over crumbs and and not that many people are actually watching cable news at any given time. But this is illustrative of the strengths and weaknesses of the respective networks. If you take the first four days, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, mm-hmm. of I think what we're now calling the uh, Israel-Hamas war of 2023, mm-hmm. and you compare it to the same four-day period a week prior... Fox News, which remains the sort of, despite all of the headaches it's endured and the $787 million defamation settlement and the departure of Tucker Carlson, it remains sort of the juggernaut in conservative media, and its ratings are up 42%. You look at CNN, which has suffered in the ratings remarkably pretty much ever since Warner Brothers Discovery took over the network, at least after that sort of momentary spike of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And has had sort of all of these like unforced errors and self-inflicted wounds under Chris Licht. A lot of damage has been done to to the reputation of that brand, I think. It is up 17%. The fact that it is up, again, suggests that people, some people still know when global historic events take place, the best place to go on television is CNN. At the same time, a 17% jump is nowhere near the sort of jump that CNN saw when Russia invaded Ukraine, when other events of this magnitude happen. This historically is the time when CNN doesn't just get a minor uptick in the ratings, but it actually demonstrates its value almost as a public utility. And it is being given a lifeline here in terms of being able to, to showcase its news gathering prowess. And at the same time, this bump is is so relatively small that I think it highlights just how much damage Chris Lick did to the, to, to the reputation. Now, MSNBC, which of course is capital, no, no one has capitalized more on CNN struggles than MSNBC, and they have made themselves a sort of liberal therapy for addled and angsty, you know, uh, anti-Trumpers. They are totally flat-footed when it comes to events like these. Yes, they've got the resources of NBC News and, and Richard Engel is great. Yes, they are able to send, you know, an, an Ali Velshi or two to the scene. And yes, some, however many years ago, Brian Roberts made an investment in Sky and they have Sky News, which they can sort of simulcast. But all of this sort of just serves to highlight how ill-equipped they are to sort of meet a moment like this And as a result, their ratings have gone down by 33%. And so now add on top of that, I think, which is sort of really important, is that in these moments, somehow not only does MSNBC manage to demonstrate how ill-equipped it is, they also manage to sort of fall into these fights, these sort of like liberal academic debates 
over the issue at hand. That happened with the Russian invasion of Ukraine when some anchors were suggesting that, uh, you know, our response to Ukraine, we, we seem to be caring too much about the people in Ukraine and we, we, we don't care as much when, you know, countries in other parts of the world get attacked. Um, I'm not sure why that was the exact moment to have that debate. And now we are seeing the sort of what is being interpreted by some as almost um, apologism for what's happening, almost blame on Israel among some of the people. And you, and then what you get is you get, you know, the head of the Anti-Defamation League going on MSNBC and reaming them out for both siderism and for effectively minimizing the terrorism that took place in, in, in this event. And then even you, you even get some of the network's own hosts sort of going after their own network for this, like Joe Scarborough this morning. He didn't blow up at MSNBC, but he blew up at the media generally for not being clear enough and demonstrative enough in terms of how it's characterizing this and and not noting this for what it is. And if, if, if you pull back out and you go up to the sort of, you know, what does NBC, what does the Peacock brand want to be known for? It does not want to be known for coming up against the edge of apologizing or somehow rationalizing the atrocity that took place here, while at the same time demonstrating that it, it is not a global news organization in the sense that a CNN is. And and that is sort of this unique moment. And, and maybe, you know, three, four weeks from now, we will sort of go back to a hyper Trump, hyper 2024 campaign focus, and MSNBC's ratings will correct. But there's also another world in which that doesn't take place. And, and the damage here for MSNBC lasts a little longer. There are stories, it turns out, like this one that are far more nuanced and complicated than the simplistic boxes that US politics often insists <laughs> That's right. stories have to be thrust into. Uh, and this is certainly one of them. But you know, I will say it's been interesting, really, since 2016, 2015, even, a lot of newsrooms, and this is probably more on the print digital side than TV, have become scared of their own shadows because you have a younger, more progressive and restive employee base within your companies that are demanding that news organizations do more to call out racism and inequalities and colonialism. <laughs> and yeah. MSNBC sort of has that issue with its audience. Look, its audience, like you mentioned, is older. But the young left in particular has been pushing the Democratic Party in a more sympathetic direction when it comes to Palestinians. I mentioned this with Julia the other day, but Gallup uh, happened to put out a poll in March that found that Democrats now sympathize more with Palestinians than they do with Israelis. And that is actually a shift from the last 10 years. And a lot of that, I think, is coming from the progressive left, which has, you know, and I wrote about this for Puck as well, expressed very maximalist views about racism and colonialism, et cetera. And this flared right here in Boston the other day at a, at a pro-Israel rally, where a bunch of progressive elected officials, including Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, spoke. And Ed Markey, who was elected in his Democratic primary a few years ago over uh, Joe Kennedy, was booed when he called for de-escalating the violence. He was booed. And partly that's because Markey, I think, is looking over his shoulder at progressives who are very supportive of the Palestinian people and didn't <laughs> maybe didn't read the room at a pro-Israel rally that 
you know, they want <laughs> vengeance. It was a remarkable moment, actually. I recommend people go watch the video because Marky's taken aback. You can even look at Elizabeth Warren's face. She's like, whoa, that's crazy what's going on there. Um, and so, I, you know, I mentioned all, all of that to say there have been times in the last five or six years when MSNBC has been reluctant to tell their audience that, like, hey, things aren't going exactly the way you want them to, you know? Donald right. Trump might be terrible 90% of the time, but 10% of the time, maybe, maybe he's aligned with public opinion or maybe he's just doing standard issue Republican things. It's very interesting to see a, a complicated story like this play out in a way that doesn't jive necessarily with the received wisdom of the left. Right. I mean, one you know, one thing just as, as I'm listening to you talk, Peter, is the status quo in American sort of political punditry, at least in certainly in the Trump era or, or in any era where we are dealing with domestic politics, is that it is very easy to program from the sides, the left or the right, because your audience is sort of all in agreement, right? So you are, it is never controversial on MSNBC to be aggressively anti-Trump. It is never controversial on Fox News to be aggressively anti-liberal. And uh, it is very, very hard to program from the center because mm -hmm. centrism doesn't really sell well in American politics, at least from an entertainment perspective. And because it, I guess, same point, but it's sort of, you know, how do you make this engaging and compelling if you are not sort of yelling and shouting at people? And things like, you know, again, a major historical global historical event that sort of taps the third rail such as what happened in Israel and Gaza is something that sort of flips that equation on its head. And all of a sudden the sort of the, the fault lines of partisan ideology, right? So like the far left versus the sort of more centrist left that becomes the new battleground. And then uh, it becomes very hard for MSNBC to figure out exactly how to handle a moment like that without running afoul of one of its uh, constituencies and at the same time, it becomes much easier for CNN to sort of see the lane in which it can do the thing that it has always been best at and that has always been its biggest value add. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the journalism and that is the news gathering. And it's interesting when you sit to hear you say about how many people in news organizations are afraid of their own shadow, because the new CEO of CNN, who just started this week told the staff of some 3,500 people that they should no longer be afraid of their own shadow, that all of these sort of internal debates about how woke they should be and how, you know, non-biased, unbiased they should be and how sort of, you know, whether or not they should be representing both sides. He's like, don't stop getting caught up in those debates. Those debates get in the way of journalism. And oftentimes in journalism, as tricky and complicated as these issues can be, um, and as careful as you need to be, the North Star is the truth. The North Star is facts-based reporting. And again, moments like these can be very clarifying for a network like CNN. And we were talking about CNN and MSNBC. I do want to mention, though, that Fox News, despite you know being overrun with right-wing punditry here on the domestic front does have resources overseas and and does some good field reporting. Uh, Trey Yanks is over there for Fox and has done some really good stuff. And, and remember, Fox News also lost a beloved photojournalist in Ukraine uh, in March 2022. And, and Ben Hall, their correspondent, 
you know, lost his leg over there uh, when their crew came under fire. They were risking their lives. Um, and so they do some good field reporting as well. It should be mentioned. Um, Dylan, I will see you over in the ivory tower later uh, with all of the, the Tweedy Harvard types. As we discuss the future of journalism, we'll do it live. Thanks, buddy. All right, man. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about Twitter. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Bill, I wanted to have you back on for an update on Twitter, or X, as we're now supposed to call it, which is uh, bleeding money and massively underwater on the equity that Elon put into it. Last week, Linda Yaccarino, the CEO of X, gave this video Zoom pitch to a group of Wall Street banks that are holding billions of dollars of the company's debt. Presumably, she was trying to convince them that that debt is not worthless. She said that revenue is growing in the high single digits, that they expect to be cash flow positive sometime in the the latter half of next year, including these massive interest payments they have to make. If you're the banker at Morgan Stanley or Barclays who is listening to this presentation, are you at all reassured by any of this? Um, In a short answer, no. There's nothing, you know, in the year that, you know, Elon has owned Twitter slash X, Twitix, I don't know what we call it anymore. Um, I don't think he's done anything that would reassure me as a lender. And I'm sure he's done nothing to reassure my regulators at the Fed about those loans. And so I suspect that these banks like Morgan Stanley and B of A and Barclays have uh, quietly uh, taken their write downs on this piece of paper that they own, uh, however billion or whatever they own of, or several billion of the thirteen billion. There's seven banks that own the thirteen billion, and uh, you know none of it has been sold into the market, which is highly unusual a year later for a highly leveraged loan. I mean, we're talking about a loan of almost infinite leverage because there's no EBITDA at the moment at X, Twitter. But you've reported that they haven't been able to get rid of it at 50, 60 cents in the dollar. People still don't want it. Or, well, or they maybe could. they're not willing to part with it for... Yeah, I mean, th- here's the thing. I know they've had offers uh, at 50 cents on the dollar to buy it and maybe even as high as 60 cents. Uh, you know, they haven't sold it. Uh, they've probably taken their markdowns because I'm sure the Fed required that and they tucked it into something else so that nobody can figure out really what they've done. But there haven't been any reports of sales into the market. And, you know, that's really surprising, honestly, because um, these Wall Street banks are not in the business anymore of holding on to this stuff, especially when it's uh, crappy, which is what, uh, you know, the X loan has turned out to be. Now, there is one important mitigating factor, which is that there seem to be uh, still getting interest payments, quarterly interest payments on the loan because Elon is making them, I assume. I, I haven't seen the flows of the of the cash, but the company we know doesn't have the money to pay for them, pay those interest payments. And so it must be coming from, you know, Elon, the world's richest man, to make these payments of something like a billion and a half a year, you know, out of his two hundred and forty billion fortune. I don't know whether that's annoying to him or not. Um 
it would be annoying to me, but I don't understand exactly why Elon is continuing to make those payments. But that might be, you know, one of the small comforts that the banks are taking, that, that, that there hasn't been a payment default. There's been no requirement of amortization payments yet. But I'm sure the Fed would like them to get rid of these loans, and they haven't done it yet. Well, it doesn't help that uh, advertising revenue is way down. That used to be the core business at Twitter. At its peak, it was something like $5 billion a year. Now, you know, Elon has said it, it's off 50%, 60%. So God knows the real number is probably worse. You know, it's not surprising at all to me when you consider the complexity of the brand safety issues that that companies are dealing with that Elon himself has created by unleashing and amplifying and promoting hateful voices that were previously banned or suppressed on the platform under Jack Dorsey. Um, obviously not a, a paradise uh, back then either, but but certainly a little bit cleaner, a little bit safer. Speaking for myself, just to bring this around to current events, I've seen in particular over the last 72 hours of violence and atrocities in Israel and Gaza, that Twitter has just been an absolute cesspool of bigotry and information. I, I don't know if you've encountered that on your own feed, but it has really just underscored for me what trouble this platform is in. Ben, I look at my feed on Twitter X or Twixer or whatever, and my feed is totally comprised of people I don't follow. Now, I know there's two strands of the Twitter DNA now, one of people you follow and one for people that they're recommending you to follow or for you. I don't even know where that came from or why that came from or what that but you know, I don't even recognize uh, even the people I'm supposed to be following anymore and only a very, very few of them seem to show up in my timeline anymore. Of course, the advertising is a joke. You know, it's like my pillow on steroids. Although okay, occasionally there's like a, an interesting kitchen uh, gadget that uh, looks appealing to, um, you know, make garlic uh, strands easier to Oh, I've to gotten obtain. that one. Yeah you, yeah, you can roll the little piece of metal over the garlic and it... It's kind of working on me. The more I see that, I think yeah. maybe maybe, yeah, I maybe use that. we need one of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are, there are occasionally things like that that appear to be useful. Although I can't even imagine uh, you know pulling the trigger on any of that. So I don't get it. I mean, you know, when Visa spends ten dollars on advertising on X in the last quarter, uh, when AT and T spends like seven hundred fifty dollars, I think my uh, AT and T bill alone for the last quarter was more than they spent on advertising on Twitter in the last quarter. So I don't understand it. Now, you know, I you know, I have my little pet theory, Ben, <laughs> that I like to promote and talk about. I mean, the only thing that could possibly make sense, you know, and if I could advise Elon and he would listen to me, as I've said, what he should be doing is he should be buying back that debt and retiring it. You know, the only thing that makes sense anymore is, you know, continuing to sort of, because I know from the Isaacson's book on Musk that he felt like he really got screwed in the purchase price of Twitter. And of course he did. Of course, it's a self-inflicted wound. He's the one that chose, you know, to pay $44 billion and he tried to weasel out of it. He couldn't do it, which is right as well. So, I mean, obviously he's peeved that he had to pay $44 billion. I don't blame him. He shouldn't have ever agreed to that in the first place. That was a huge uh, and dumb mistake. And then signing a contract without any due diligence out, mis dumb mistake number two. But the only way he can possibly reduce his purchase price at this point is by buying back his debt at pennies on the dollar 
uh, and retiring that debt, that would reduce his purchase price by close to $13 billion. And so how does he do that? Well, he does that by, I think, doing what he's been doing, which is <laughs> destroying the business, you know, making it a place that advertisers don't want to appear on, that people don't want to pay for blue check marks or don't want to subscribe to or do any of the things that he's doing. The only thing that makes sense for what he's been doing, in my opinion, Ben, because, you know, unless he just doesn't care, which is also a possibility, is that he's trying to destroy the the village uh, before he can save it, destroy Twitter, buy back the $13 billion of bank debt for pennies on the dollar, retire it, and then reduce his purchase price by, you know, what he's uh, saved in terms of ever having to pay back the principal of that debt, plus his, um, you know, annual interest payments. You know, if that's not what he's doing, then, you know, then, then I have to go to default uh, B, which is that he just doesn't care. It's like a hobby for him that he's just going to lose money on. And uh, since he's the world's richest guy and his net worth went up $100 billion since he's owned Twitter, you know, I guess it really just doesn't matter. And so therefore, I'll just be like a cat with a ball of string uh, on this one. Uh, whatever happens, happens. And uh, he doesn't really care uh, about the financial implications of any of what he's done. I mean, I, Bill, I love this theory. I, I sort of don't think that Elon is smart enough to be doing all this on purpose, but I do think that he's just dumb enough to destroy the company and then just lucky enough that this could be a sort of silver lining where he could end up buying back the debt for 20 cents or 15 cents in the dollar or whatever it is. But uh, it, it really has been truly incredible to see the value destruction in real time. And again, you know, br- bringing it back to what's happening in Israel right now. I mean, this comes right after he just stripped all of the headlines out of articles for no reason except that he said they were sort of aesthetically unappealing. You know, obviously he got rid of verification for journalists and and, and media organizations. So we're just getting garbage in our feeds from anyone who has paid $8 a month to Twitter for the privilege of, of boosting themselves. And then, of course, you've got Elon himself, who just the other day was telling people that if they want updates on the war, they should follow this account he discovered, which turned out to be a sort of neo-Nazi anti-Semite. <laughs> so you, you kind of wonder how he keeps finding these people himself. But um, it really has been incredible. If he's not doing it on purpose, he is certainly doing it one way or another. And the one thing he has to worry about, I mean, if, if he doesn't buy the debt and, you know, he, he, he probably he probably won't. But somebody is going to buy that debt because that debt has to be sold. It will be sold off the bank's balance sheet. And at some point, the banks are going to say, okay, I'm, I'm done hoping uh, for an improvement here. You know, you don't want to be the last bank selling this bank debt, okay? You want to be the first bank selling this bank debt because that way you'll probably get the highest price, you know, unless there's some, you know, major unforeseen uh, turnaround here. And if that debt gets bought by, you know, a vulture investor slash clever distressed investor, they're going to know how to put this thing into bankruptcy and or uh, demand some sort of uh, debt for equity swap. And then uh, Elon, you know, as I've been writing about, uh, could easily lose control of X slash Twitter, and which, of course, would be great for users. Again, maybe that's what he wants. Maybe that's the way he gets rid of this thing. Uh, maybe he does some sort of merger with Bill Ackman's Spark. I don't know, but he's unless he buys this debt, he's made himself very vulnerable. If it gets into the hands of 
any number of uh, smart vulture investors, then he's got a real fight for his hand. Now, that would be great to watch, you know, from our perspective. But from you know, again, Elon may not care because he's the world's richest guy. Most people would care. Most people wouldn't do what he's doing. But obviously, he's not most people. He's quite unique. Yeah, kind of kind of a bummer for uh, civil society, Bill, but uh, the fireworks uh, <laughs> are are enjoyable to watch from the sidelines too. Uh, thanks as always for stopping by. I'm sure we'll have more on this soon. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.